This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. So, yesterday, a big development in vaccinations in the province of Ontario. We saw the AstraZeneca vaccine, which, as the federal health minister, Patty Haidu, has outlined, can be administered by any province to anybody over the age of 18. There has been hesitancy to do that, but Ontario decided yesterday, 40-plus, you are up. So I think we need to take stock of how things have been going at pharmacies because that is where AstraZeneca is going to be and is being used. So we've got to take stock of how this is working and what to expect going forward. And who better to speak with than someone who owns a pharmacy and is dealing with this firsthand. We won't take too much of her time because I'm sure there's a lot to unpack with the additions of the 40-plus crowd in this province. But please welcome to London Live, Kristen Watt, owner of Kristen's Pharmacy in Southampton. Kristen, thanks for taking some time for us. Thanks for having me. Let's kind of, even before yesterday's announcement, Let's kind of look at at what had been taking place in pharmacies up until yesterday with regard to COVID-19 vaccinations. Sure. So we started off slow in the province, rolling out to a variety of pharmacies in a variety of regions. We started in three regions um, about a month ago now um, to see how it would go, how the flow through the vaccine supplies would come, our our utilization of the various technologies. Um, So just three regions. It it then expanded to every region in Ontario, a few pharmacies in every region. And as we speak, it's getting bigger and bigger across the province. And the goal is to get it into every pharmacy that does flu shots um, to get the COVID vaccine into them. And uh, we believe that we'll have everybody onboarded probably by the end of the month. So by the end of the month, how do you watch this as a pharmacist saying, okay, how's this going to impact us? What have you been looking for? Um, so supply has been the biggest thing. Uh, we want to get this into as many arms as we possibly can. We're preparing to offer it, um, in, in specifically in my store, we offer it uh, as a separate workflow because we're still pharmacies, we're still pharmacists, we're still dispensing medications, we're still providing pharmaceutical care to patients. So how would this impact us from a workflow perspective? So we do it completely as a separate flow from the pharmacy and the drug dispensing, we have one immunizer, one administ- uh, administrative assistant helping out. And as long as we have the supply, we can bang through um, nearly 100 doses in my small pharmacy every day. So the biggest thing that we're looking at is supply. So when you bring up the flu shot, when you compare the execution to what goes on with the flu shot, are there similarities? Many, many. High demand is one. Um, Some supply challenges in the beginning is another. Um, A lot of education for patients and discussing the risks versus the benefits, the different types that are available. All of that goes into every single appointment that we are seeing. And when people go to make appointments, it's not like they're giving you a direct call every time. There's the ability to book online. How is that working out? 
so we don't have access to the province's um, online booking system, which was is challenging, um, which means that each patient who's looking for a dose is looking at calling or booking online with each individual pharmacy. There are a great number of different booking platforms. So we picked a piece of technology where a patient can book online for our wait list. And then when I have a dose available for them, I can call, email or text them to book an actual appointment. That's gone really well. We Our wait list was as high as 4,000 about two weeks ago. Today, we're down to 2,700, which is actually up from yesterday with this new announcement of the 40 plus. And we just keep working our way through the list. Every time we get doses, we send out invites to book appointments. If people don't respond, we send invites out to the next round of people. And we've kept it really seamless on our end to try and keep it as simple as possible, both for us and for the patients. Kristen Waugh joining us, owner of Kristen's Pharmacy in Southampton. As we look at things from a pharmacy perspective with the rollout of vaccines, I think a lot of us are sitting back and thinking, Kristen, you just used the word seamless, and you had a wait list of 4,000 and and even a wait list now of 2,700. I wouldn't be able to sleep at night trying to manage that kind of stuff. How has the management worked? What's made it seamless? A lot of work. That's just the bottom line. So I'm a small independent community pharmacy. It's my name on the door. And so I'm the one working, looking at the list, making the um, decisions of who we're going to invite in. Uh, it's, it's a ton of work. So kindness to your local community pharmacies is uh, something that I implore from everybody because it, it simply is, is, is man, woman, people hours on the ground to make this work. There is a person behind every single dose that you get and not just behind the needle, but behind you booking those appointments. Somebody is looking at a list, seeing you on that list, trying to get you an appointment. And in terms of, of getting someone on an appointment, do you contact them and say, okay, we have the ability to book one or are they contacted and told, can you make it Tuesday at three? So what we're doing is sending out invite links using our platform, um, giving them a, a 24 hours to book an appointment and their appointments available within a two to three day window is what we're doing. So we're keeping it nice and short because we have to account that for the fact that once you puncture these vials, they're good for 48 hours. So I need to move each vial within 48 hours of that puncture. Again, I have had no issue doing that with a huge with the huge wait list. Uh, book solid today when we get more doses which we expect will be for tomorrow we will be book solid through the rest of the week but at the same time i mean that this doesn't sound like it's a, a uniform thing where here's how pharmacies carry this out it sounds like your planning and the planning of pharmacists is key here exceptionally uh and we are relying on the professionals and the professionalism of all of us across the board to get this done the big thing that uh came to my realization at the beginning was like okay we've got a few weeks this is going to be a lot of intense work we're going to get through it when we were booking people's second doses which at 16 weeks from now is into uh, july and august i realized really how long this marathon is going to be for all of us on the front lines uh, to get get these vaccines out. We are going to be vaccinating nonstop for quite a while to get everybody vaccinated. What do you think the maximum number you could do in a day would be? Um, so that would depend on the location. So in store, our, we max out at 84 doses a day. That's every five minutes for seven and a half hours. Um, if we could vaccinate off-site, which we do believe is coming in an executive order uh, from the Ministry of Health in the next day or so, uh, I could potentially vaccinate up to um, 
500 in a day. That's a big difference. It is a big difference because it's the space. We need people to distance properly. We need people to have that observed time. Um, and the, uh, allowing me a large location would, would allow us to move through. The actual poking part is very short in terms of the overall job that we're doing. It's the education and the documentation that takes the most amount of time. Sure. And as far as the education goes, what sorts of things are you telling people? Uh, great question. So with AstraZeneca, the number one question is about the clots. And and I think it's important not to compare this risk of clot to other clot risky things like birth control and pregnancy and flying, um, because I don't think that addresses a specific question because this these clots are real. They have happened to people. Um, some people have died from these clots. So we need to address it head on. Yes, this risk exists. This is the rate at which it's happening, somewhere between one in 100,000 and one in a million. But also at the same time that we evaluate that risk, what is the risk of this person in front of me contracting COVID, uh, it being severe enough to put them in the ICU and the possibility of death? So those are the conversations that we're having. And we're having these conversations in the context of the area that we're in. So look at the case rates in the specific areas and what that risk means to those patients. And, and people are really appreciative of us spending that time and, and laying it out for them, what the risk and the benefit. And honestly, across the board right now, with the with the numbers the way they are, the benefits far far outweigh the risk. Right, and that's that's a. I'm so glad you brought that up, Kristen, because we're trying to think of ways to convey this to people to say, hey, go and do your research. Make sure you're reading from a you know a, a good source and and read what there is. But yeah, don't necessarily just say, well, it's it's you know lower risk than the birth control pill or lower risk. It's a it's kind of a different comparison that you've laid out. That's right. And we are also warning them of the signs, the symptoms and the timeline of those clots. So four to 20 days, 21 days after the injection, uh, severe abdominal pain, severe headache, blurred vision, because if we can identify those clots before they become um, deadly, we can actually treat them. So then the risk of this vaccine goes down even farther because while there is this potential side effect, we can treat the potential side effect if we identify it quickly. So giving the people all the information that they need to identify those potential side effects, what to be worried about, what to do about them, go to the emergency room. Now they're armed with even more data and, and feeling more confident about what they're about to get. Kristen Watt from Kristen's Pharmacy in Southampton joining us. Kristen, thanks for giving us all this time. Anything else you think we need to know before we go? Be kind and be patient. Waste lists are not first come, first serve. We are doing our best to get it to the people who are most in need. If you are eligible through your public health unit, try to get a dose to them. Sometimes they have greater uh, uh, vaccine volume, and that allows us to move doses for populations that don't necessarily qualify through the public health program at this time. Well said. Kristen, thank you so much. Please keep safe and keep up the amazing work. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. Take care. That's Kristen Watt from Kristen's Pharmacy in Southampton. So some really good information there. And, yeah, if this is going to work smoothly, we do need to thank our neighborhood pharmacists and everyone who is working there to make this happen. It is our pleasure to welcome to London Live the Ontario NDP leader, and that is Andrea Horvath. Ms. Horvath, thanks so much for being here. Always my pleasure, Mike. Thanks for the invitation. Let's talk about this morning. Um, the word plan was laid out. 
Tell us about the plan that you would like to see used for this province right now. Well, Mike, the plan is based on what the experts asked Doug Ford to uh, put in place on Friday. Uh, and we all saw that instead of listening to those experts, Doug Ford chose to, uh, you know, to bring in a police state in our province and shut down playgrounds. Uh, and uh, you saw the outrage that Ontarians expressed following that. Uh, but what they wanted and what they've been begging for uh, are some pretty fundamental uh, pieces they they want to see and we want to see. So in response to Doug's failure on Friday, we brought forward a plan uh, with with the uh, you know with the kinds of things that the experts are talking about and paid sick days for Ontarians uh, by passing Bill 239, which is a piece of legislation we tabled uh, several months ago now, and uh, that includes the paid sick days piece, and it also includes the t- paid time off to get a vaccine, which is the other thing we're asking for. Uh, Cancelling the, the the regulation that the government uh, put in place on Friday uh, that gives the extraordinary police power, uh, powers to police, police officers, which uh, thankfully uh, the, the police across the province don't want those powers. Um, the shutting down of actually non-essential uh, workplaces, we know that there are many non-essential workplaces that continue to operate, and the government needs to, if they want to stop this virus from spreading, they need to shut those workplaces down and provide direct financial support to the businesses and workers who would be impacted. Let's take sick days first in all of this. This is something that we understand might be addressed by the federal government. When you look at the Ontario government versus the federal government, does it matter to you who makes this just as long as we do get some assistance and some help in terms of sick days? Well, I mean, part of the problem that we have is that the federal program doesn't work for people, and that's why there's still so much of it uh, that's underutilized. Uh, so I don't know what the provincial, or rather what the federal government might uh, do to tweak that, but people shouldn't have to apply for a benefit. They should, as of, uh, as of right, every day, go into work knowing uh, that uh, if they need to go home sick, then that's okay, and they'll still get the same paycheck. Uh, they need to know that in the morning, if they're not feeling well, uh, they can call in sick and know that at the end of the week or the, or the pay period, they'll still have the same paycheck. Uh, the, the way that this is achieved is through the provincial process, uh, through the Provincial Employment Standards Act. Uh, so this is why we've been urging Doug Ford to do this. Uh, this is why Saskatchewan uh, has implemented paid time off for people to get their vaccines, because it's employment law, which is a provincial responsibility. Uh, people need all the help they can get. Uh, I don't know what the federal government, as I said, is, is prepared to do, but it can't be something where people have to qualify so, for example, the current federal program, you have to have, uh, uh, have missed 50% of your regularly scheduled hours to even apply for, for their program. Uh, you have to, uh, uh, the, the program provides benefits, but it's less than uh, minimum wage, the amount of benefits that you get. And, and again, uh, you, you have to wait to, uh, to, go, to go through that process to get the actual uh, money in hand. In the meantime, you're not going to be able to pay the rent, perhaps. You're not going to be able to put food on the table. Uh, and it's, it's, 
a lot of hoops to ask people to go through, especially when they're afraid that they might have COVID-19. Let's be uh, smart about this, the way the experts in Ontario have been demanding, and make it as easy as possible for our frontline essential workers uh, to, uh, to make the decision not to go to work when they're feeling ill or when they need to get a COVID test, you know, or when they need to isolate. But that's not what's happening, and that's not what the federal, what the federal program does. Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath joining us. Ms. Horvath, do you have any inkling what goes into the unwillingness of the Ontario government right now to do more about paid sick days? You know, I really don't, and it's something that Doug Ford has to answer for. Uh, But we do know that at the beginning of uh, Doug Ford's term, uh, when he got elected a couple of years ago, one of the first moves he made was to nix, like to get rid of, to deep six, the two paid sick days uh, that the Liberals were finally forced to put in place uh, before the last election. And so uh, that we had two paid sick days in Ontario and Doug Ford, uh, you know, got rid of them um, when he was elected. So he obviously has a, you know, he has something against paid sick days. Uh, you'll have to ask him what he has against paid sick days. Uh, but it's at, at this point in time, uh, he's pretty much the only one uh, in Ontario, um, you know, when it comes to decision makers uh, that uh, that doesn't think paid sick days is the right thing to do. Every one of his uh, experts, every one of his advisors, uh, all of the people on the science table and the public health tables believe that this is the right thing to do. One last thing, Ms. Horvath, and that is with closing non-essential workplaces, we're going to have people who have been working so hard to get through this on such limited business and the ability to have even a small percentage of people in, uh, that's, that's going to be a, a big deal to them. What do we say to those people if, if you were to close all non-essential workplaces? Well, exactly what we've, uh, we've been saying to the government. They need to step up and provide the direct financial support uh, to the businesses and workers that are impacted. Doug Ford just doesn't want to spend the money to help business. And we've seen through the first wave, through the second wave, and now through the third wave, uh, I agree with you, businesses are losing their shirts. Uh, local businesses are closing up left, right, and center. Uh, and, and they're doing that because the the uh, you know the, the the programs that the provincial government has put in place to try to support them have been useless for many businesses. Uh, many many businesses don't qualify, and and bu- business uh, organizations like the CFIB uh, and others were telling the Ford government before they tabled their budget a couple weeks ago that they needed to fix the program, fix the program so more businesses could qualify. But they refused to do it. They doubled the amount of money in the program um, and and added some. Um, uh, some other folks like uh, like tourism uh, uh, type of businesses, but they didn't fix the program. And so that's just not acceptable. Uh, if we're asking businesses to close their doors for a couple of weeks, a hard close, so that we can stop the transmission of this virus, then we have to pay their bills. We have to pay their bills so that they can get over this next period and, uh, and be able to operate once we've tackled the virus. And at the same time, we need to make sure that the workers impacted uh, are, are able to pay the bills. Ms. Horvath, as a final quick question, we know Ontario does not have a lot of money at our disposal, and we can go back to a number of reasons for that. Would we have even the money to attempt any of this? We can't afford not to. People are dying. People are losing their lives. Our hospitals are over run. Uh, our frontline healthcare workers are exhausted and, and our ICUs are, are, are completely filled. I mean, this is, this is a life and death decision here uh, and, and, and Mr. Ford's on the wrong side of it. 
Uh, and, and I don't know how anybody calculates what the cost of a life is. I think life is, lives are more valuable. As one of the experts said, one of the scientists said the other day, you can rebuild a business. You can rebuild an economy. You can whittle down a deficit or a, 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 you know, a, a deficit and debt over time. Once a life is gone, it's gone. Once somebody's dead, they're not coming back. Ms. Horvath, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. That is Andrea Horvath, leader of the Ontario NDP. Let's take a moment to picture something. Picture whatever it is that you either do in life or have done in life, whatever you worked toward as a career. Now, picture at some point, probably in your prime, deciding, I'm going to take what I've done right here. I'm going to take everything that I've earned. And I'm going to give that up in its entirety. So let's say you have worked to become a dentist. Let's say you have worked to you know, get yourself a PhD in something. You're going to take all that has come with that, and you're going to park it. And you're going to take your family, you're going to immigrate to another country, and you're going to do whatever it takes to put food on the table for your family but it's probably not going to be what you have studied to become, what you have worked to be. It's just going to be whatever it is that can provide for your family with the hope that that sacrifice made by you can put them into a better position going forward. Think about having to make that decision. How, how do you even do that? Where does that come from? Well, there are a number of places that it comes from there are a number of things that will drive the decision to do it but what if you got to that country what if you moved to an entirely different country but they recognized your skills and they made use of your skills and you could say hey i was a tremendous dentist i can go and do that in another country and i can be a tremendous dentist for other people and still get an opportunity for my family going forward? That's a question that we want to examine right now. Because it isn't easy to make that move, and it certainly isn't easy to make the jump from doing a job in one country to doing it in another. Joining us right now is Claudia Hepburn, CEO of Windmill Micro Lending. They're a national charity, and what they try to do is empower skilled immigrants to achieve economic prosperity through microloans and support. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But, Claudia, thanks so much for being here. How is Monday going? Well, it's going well. Thank you, Mike. We have all heard stories of individuals who have made some ultimate sacrifices to help out their families, to try and give them a better life, to move to a country like the one that we enjoy here. And yet it, it does sometimes mean giving up a lot of what they love to do. Take us through maybe what kicked things off for Windmill to, to really try and, and recognize this and, and make some changes for the better. Yeah, well, thank you. So Windmill is a little charity that, that got started about 15 years ago when a woman who was a psychologist um, had her office in the, in the basement of a hospital in Calgary. And she'd be working late the way, uh, the way all of us do um, in our offices. And in working late, she'd speak to the cleaning staff. 
And she became really frustrated when she discovered that several of them were internationally trained healthcare professionals. And she said, stop, this is ridiculous. You should not be emptying my trash when you should be practicing as a physician or a nurse or um, in this hospital. And they said, well, that's really nice, Maria. Um, I'd love to practice as a nurse or a physician again here, but I don't have any access to affordable credit. And because of that, you know, I can't, I can't earn minimum wage or, or, or work this survival job and save the money that I need to take the exam to practice again here in Canada. And so most of us would say, oh, that's really too bad, you know, sorry, sorry, sorry for you. Um, that's, that's really bad, bad news. But Maria got a group of her girlfriends together around her kitchen table, and she said, couldn't we solve this if we just raised $25,000 and made some small loans to these internationally trained um, professionals so that then they could pass the exams, then they could repay us, and then we could, um, they'd earn more money, and they could repay us, and we could then lend the money out to somebody else. So that's how we got started in, in, this, in this work of helping skilled newcomers put their skills to work in Canada by making many small, affordable loans. Claudia, you've seen this firsthand. 18 months ago, you met someone named Ashraf. Can you tell us that story? Yes, yes, uh, thank you. So I was in Calgary, and I was having, having a breakfast meeting, and then I, I, called, I, you know, I called for an Uber um, to take me to, the, to our office um, in Calgary. And I got into the into the Uber, and um, the taxi driver was was chatty the way you know often you get into a taxi or an Uber, and they are. And we started talking, and Ashraf told me that he was an he was a refugee from Sudan, where he'd been had a death warrant put out for him. And he said, "Oh, you know, I was going to be killed, and and so I was very lucky to be welcomed to Canada." And I brought my, my three young daughters, and my wife was pregnant, and she's just given birth, and I just spent the nice night in the ICU. And he's telling me this terrible story of, of, of um, you know, his family's move and how happy he was to be in, in Canada. And I said, I said, oh, you know, what did you do before you came to Canada? And he told me that he'd been a dentist, um, a dental surgeon who'd had n- numerous clinics that he'd run. And, and he made a joke of it. He said, you know, oh, you know, all I know how to do is dentistry and driving. And, so, that, and so, that I'm, so that's why I'm here driving in Canada. And I thought, you know, what a waste this was. This, this bright, articulate, optimistic, um, you know, funny um, uh, man in his prime, probably in his early 30s, uh, would, would be stuck driving when he, sh- when he had such high skills to be a dental surgeon. And I said, have, have you ever thought about trying to get reaccredited? here in Canada as a dentist. And he said, oh, yes, but it's so expensive. It takes so many years to do. And, you know, it's just not affordable. So I was, you know, in this lucky position that I run a charity that does, does exactly that. And I said, well, have you heard of windmill microlending? And, and he was de- delighted to, to discover it. And, um, and he said, I said, well, why don't you come up to the office with me? And um, maybe you can apply for a loan today. And, and he, you know, he immediately canceled his next ride. And he said, I got all my papers in the back. Today is my lucky day. My mother always told me, we are a lucky family. You're lucky to be in Canada. We value education as a family. And it's all going to work out for you, Ashraf. He said, today is my lucky day. I'm going to apply for this loan. And, and you know, a week later, he had a $15,000 loan from us. And um, a year and a half later, I, he, I know he's still working, working through his exams to, um, to achieve that goal of becoming an, uh, a dentist here in Canada. But he's on that path. He is on that path. Yes. 
That's phenomenal. Claudia Hepburn joining us, CEO of Windmill Micro Lending. So, Claudia, this is helping us also to understand what some of the hurdles are. So, recertifying, is it is it the, the difficulty in recertifying, or does it come down more to the cost of recertifying? Well, it's different for every profession. You know, we, we, help, we help all kinds of healthcare professionals. We help IT professionals. We help truck drivers, um, accountants, um, you know, you name it, um, pilots, architects, vets. Uh, so every, every profession has a different, different set of challenges, a different timeline, a different set of costs. And so that's what, our, our, what we do at Windmills, not just provide loans, but we provide coaching supports and financial literacy supports. Um, to help people understand what the risks, what the costs are, what their own personal and family obstacles might be towards that accreditation. So we help them make the right choice for, for themselves and their families um, and, um, and support them with the finances along the way. We are talking right now with Claudia Hepburn, and we are talking about micro-lending. So that's another one of those words that we don't tend to hear a lot. How do we define micro lending claudia yeah so a micro a micro loan can be a different can be different amounts of money in different places so when we think about micro loans in the developing world where they were where they were first um modeled and um and are practiced most often they may be they may be tens or hundreds of dollars here in canada a micro loan is a bit can be a bit bigger so our micro loans are up to fifteen thousand dollars because that's what it costs to um, get educated sometimes here for the degrees. Sometimes it's a lot more than that. Um, but if there are loans that the banks wouldn't normally make based on somebody's income um, and risk rating. So we're offering loans to people that um, have no credit score in Canada or, or, or a poor credit score or, or not, a very, not a very much of one and who have low incomes or sometimes no income because they are new to this country and, and haven't been able to work in their field. It's incredible to see this kind of play out, and you've highlighted exactly how it does. Claudia, thank you for what your company does, because we want the best of the best in this country, and one of the ways to do it is to help people be who they are and, and do the things that they do best. So this is fantastic. If somebody wanted to learn more about it, and they're listening now, and, and maybe they're in a, a position that they would like to do what Ashraf did, what do they do? Oh, well, they can go online and visit us at windmillmicrolending.org. Um, uh, uh, and, and, and you can check out, you can do a quick eligibility quiz to see if you qualify for a loan. Um, and you can do that in a couple of minutes. So we would welcome that. Um, yeah, and we have lots of clients and we've, we've served about over, over 130 um, newcomers in, and refugees in the southwestern Ontario. And we, are, we grew more rapidly in that area than in almost any other part of the country last year. So we're looking forward to helping more. Tremendous. Claudia, thanks again and please keep safe. Thank you. That's Claudia Hepburn, CEO of Windmill Micro Lending. To be able to say, all right, I'm, I'm just going to give up everything I've done. I'm going to try and move to a place like Canada and give my family or give myself a, a better opportunity at life. But I'm going, to, I'm going to give up what I did. But what if you didn't have to? What if you could bring those skills here? That's... That's something that there's always been that disconnect. And so it's it's great to know that there are people working toward reconnecting the disconnect. 
You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.